For more information, visit futurebased.org. So I like the formulation of more than human because it focuses on interdependencies. So it shows that we as humans always depend on other beings, other technologies, other things in the environment in the same way as they depend on us. Welcome back to another episode from the Beyond Human Relations series of the Future-Based Podcast with me, your host, Chetna Pai. In the last episode, I was in conversation with Professor Jelle van Dijk about diversity computing, participatory sense-making, and what he defines a human as. A big focus of the episode was also about how we can try to design for a range of people or organisms as opposed to just designing for an assumed norm. Following from that, in today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Anton Poikulainen-Rosen about the design methods he has been developing for more than human design. This episode is one that is still quite open, but also has some concrete stages that you can go through if you are also working on a project and would like to take into consideration the more than human. Dr. Anton Poikulainen-Rosen is a postdoctoral researcher at Aalto University School of Art, Design and Architecture. His research focuses on sustainable futures in human-computer interaction and more-than-human design. He works with ethnographic methods, research through design, co-design, and speculative design. He has a PhD in informatics from Umeå University and Södertorn University in Sweden. Anton's thesis focused on more-than-human design in urban farming communities. He currently works on a project that focuses on how people can experience and evaluate conflicting ideas of sustainable futures through the use of interactive prototypes. Now, let's hear more from him and get into the episode. Hi, Anton. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Hi, I'm, I'm good. I'm happy to be here. And thanks for the invitation to join. In your bio, you say that, among other things, your research focuses on more than human design. This is also one of the main reasons why I wanted to invite you on the podcast and your focus on looking into or designing methods for this kind of design or probes for this kind of design. But before we get into that part of this podcast, I wanted to maybe kind of continue from the last episode a little bit and ask you how you define human and more than human in your work. Since, yeah, you also do human-computer interaction, so a bit of human-based design, but also more than human design. Yes. So I like the formulation of more than human because it focuses on interdependencies. So it shows that we as humans always depend on other beings, other technologies, other things in the environment in the same way as they depend on us. So I, I like to take plants as an example. You could say that we humans farm plants to eat them, but you could also say that plants farm us by giving us oxygen and then we mm -hmm. die and decompose and become food for the plants so i mean there is always this mutual interdependence so it's a kind of false separation to focus only on 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 humans so i think that's what kind of more than human signifies to me i really have never thought about plants farming us but it makes so much sense <laughs> Yeah. This is like always the problem when we see ourselves as the center is you forget that a lot of the other things do have a lot of agency and are kind of exactly. going about I their mean, business the, as well. Yeah, the consequence is if there would be no plants, we would have no oxygen and we would die. So it's like really that's kind of existential. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you define human in this? Or do you have a definition for human? 
So first of all, I like to talk about organisms instead of species. So an mm. organism is kind of coming together of cells that kind yeah. of sustain themselves. So they move around in the world and kind of eat stuff and so on. So then a human is this kind of specific form of organism that's, that is the kind of human species. And I mean, we have a set of specific capacities, just as any species have a set of specific capacities. So we have these human specific capacities. And something that is really important to keep in mind is that because we are human, we will always have this human perspective on the world. So we can try to think more than human, see this system, but we will always be situated as humans in this system and kind of experience it from our perspective. And I think that's fine. Yeah, you should allow for that. Yeah, Yeah, I think you have to be a bit okay with that because otherwise it's a losing battle <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or at least aware of it. It's also what I always struggle with when talking about these kind of things is it's really nice to imagine what the experience might be like for more than human actors or what you might be doing, but it's so hard to actually know. Yeah, like we humans enjoy from a human perspective to care for other beings, to think of what it would be like to be another mm. being. So it's actually nice also from the human perspective to actually think this, thinking this way. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Could you maybe give me and also the listeners some examples of work you have done in this space so we can get a better idea of what kind of projects you've been working on and how you, yeah, how you approach this? Yeah. So I did my PhD about urban farming and specifically how urban farmers use interactive technologies and information technologies. So I did a kind of long-term ethnographic study of a specific urban farming community. And it was participatory research. So I actually joined this community and mm. kind of farmed with them and followed the farm for several years. And in this farm, I kind of did some smaller projects. I work with kind of environmental sensors. So the easiest example is, for example, moisture sensors that tells you that mm. the soil is moist and so on. But I quite quickly discovered that... Um, People are not that interested in sensing what they can already sense with their own senses. Mm. I mean, we can see if the soil is moist. We can feel if the soil is <laughs> yeah. moist. We can smell if the soil is moist. It kind of gets this specific smell. So I then focused on technologies that can reveal the imperceptible to us or kind of beyond the human perception. Mm. Uh, so one example of that is kind of carbon dioxide sensors, uh, which can be used in several ways. Maybe the biggest way is to show the cause of climate change. If we wouldn't mm. have them, we wouldn't know the cause of climate change. But also in a more kind of farming context, you can actually measure, measure the carbon dioxide in indoor farming because plants actually thrive in much higher CO2 levels than mm. the typical atmosphere. So you could actually in increase that quite a lot. So that thing with kind of talking with plants, it really has some kind of substance because we breathe carbon dioxide yeah. too and i have also made some more kind of speculative design suggestions meaning designs that i never developed mm. in real life because it's not really technologically or engineeringly uh, possible to do that but they kind of intended to think about the future of sensing technologies for for farming and what exactly is urban farming compared to other forms of 
rural farming, I guess. How do you separate them? Yeah. Yeah. So farming indicates uh, that you grow for food. So that you would do in a rural, rural setting or an urban setting. And urban implies that you do this in a city. But then there are quite many different forms of urban farming. Mm. So, for example, there's kind of uh, hydroponic farming or aquaponic farming where people uh, grow in this kind of indoor systems with water, sometimes even with mm. fishes. There is kind of vertical farming where you grow plants like on top of each other to say space. There is kind of communal lots and so on. So, so urban farming is a kind of umbrella term for a lot of farming practices. But the kind of urban farming that I looked at was a permaculture community. Uh, and permaculture is this idea of kind of working with naturally occurring, occurring principles mm. and to kind of grow perennial plants so that you don't have to put so much work in so that the kind of plants would provide us food without mm. without us having to kind of care for it all the time without us kind of for, for working against nature but us working with with nature so going with like the more regular cycle of the plants yeah, exactly yeah so it's really based on kind of observing your local environment wherever you are in the world kind of see what's the processes and then trying to mimic that and kind of uh, be a part of that those local processes that are already ongoing. And for like permaculture kind of project in urban farming, how much space do you need to really be able to do this? Well, one square meter could be enough to kind of do the principles. But of course, if, if you would grow to sustain yourself, you actually need mm -hmm. quite a lot of space. So the urban farm that I studied was maybe like a hectare, which is quite big for being in a city but still mm, yeah. very, very small in terms of food food production. So it never really produced any kind of substantial amount of food. We could, we could kind of make salads every time we were in the farm and eat it together and so on, but no one could kind of live on it. But the thing with this farm is that it acted as a kind of space for knowledge creation and sharing. So it actually had a lot of kind of spin-offs. So some people who had never farmed before come and join kind of mm. got interested in farming and then started new kind of organic farms or even permaculture farms a bit further away from the city so this kind of semi-urban mm. uh, farms was more space so you could really you should kind of see it as a space kind of um, inspiring knowledge and kind of creating meetings also yeah okay so you did this thesis and then based on what you learned through this, you started designing methods for approaching more than human design, right? I think this yes. is really quite important because I've also looked a lot into this and a lot of people want to move to this, but nobody really knows where to start or how to do it. So yeah, I think it's really nice to maybe go through the things you learned and what your methods are now. Yeah, so I actually tried to kind of summarize these methods in a, a design probe, I call it where I provide some materials to kind of support the questions. I struggled with my myself when I did my PhD. So you maybe as a designer could kind of literally put these concepts on the table and get them as a kind of shortcut so you don't have to do all the research yourself. And I divide it into four steps. And the, the fourth, first step is actually 
articulating worldviews and setting the vocabulary. So what I noticed when you talk about this kind of more than human questions is that people tend to have, even in terms of language, very different ideas of what things mean. So before you can even start to kind of design for and with other organisms, you have to kind of agree upon a language that you can use in your project. Because otherwise you will kind of get stuck in these philosophical discussions and not really yeah. be able to kind of actually contribute to the <laughs> ecology. So people need to kind of have that talk first, and then we can kind of go to, to work. So for example, just the word nature, what does nature mean? Are humans part of nature? Are humans, are, is human culture actually embedded in nature or are we separate? People have very different opinions about that. Yeah. Or kind of the sensory perception of other beings. Like, is a plant seeing sunlight when it's moving towards the sun? Or is it kind of only reacting to sensing sunlight? Mm. These are kind of nuances in language that can be made visible. And then also the worldview. So like, how do you value things? Maybe one person in the design team is a vegetarian, while another eats meat and so on. And it's okay to have these different positions, but it's good to make the positions visible before you start to design, because then you mm. know kind of from what perspective you, you come. Is there a good way to bring people together to actually decide on one language? Because I feel like language is something you feel so strongly that it's a bit hard maybe to convince other people into your language. Have yeah, you had so any experience with it? Yeah, so the way I did it in this design probe is that I actually present scales or dimensions where I place this kind of related world words. So to take an example, uh, sensing light, vision, or seeing. So they are all on the same scale, but kind of separate. And then people can kind of put themselves on this scale. Mm. So that allows for kind of having these different positions while kind of recognizing that they were also kind of somehow related and same. So it kind of forces to be concrete while allowing this space of, of kind spectrum. of uh, movement. Spectrum, yeah. So I like to think of, so it's like a move away from binary thinking to more kind of non-binary scalar thinking. And I think that's a yeah. very important move to do in modern human design. And have you had any struggles with different like human languages? And how that impacts this, maybe? Since I know you're also between countries now a little bit, but maybe all your work is in English, but people who don't speak English as a first language, does it translate differently in their understanding of these phrases and terms? That's a very good question. Yes, because I've been working in Sweden and Finland and in English, Swedish and Finnish. And of course, there are kind of cultural differences. And some even say that your kind of whole worldview stems from your, from your language. So I think kind of being bilingual or even multilingual actually creates this kind of felt experience of knowing that there are different ways of mm. kind of seeing, seeing the world. So I think language is an important resource here. Although we still need to remember that it's really the things like unfolding out there in the real world that matters. But yeah, <laughs> there's a dynamic there. And then when it comes to worldviews, so there's one thing about priorities and how you view things in terms of value in the world. But is there anything else that figures into this building of a worldview together? 
Yeah, so like some of the scales were focused more on definitions, but then I have other scales that are more focused on kind of values. So where I, for example, ask like, okay, focus on whatever organism you have. What do you think its kind of inherent value is like for itself? What is its value for humans? Mm. And kind of what is its value for other organisms? So those are more kind of forcing people to take a stance in a kind of value-based way or their opinions. Okay, so first you start with this and with the theme, you build a, a language and a worldview, at least to the point where everyone understands where everyone else is coming from with approaching yeah. this. I think that's a great start, good foundation. <laughs> and then where do we go from there? Yeah, and then we actually need to characterize the specific like uh, characteristics of the organisms that are affected by our design or even maybe using our design. So first we have to kind of identify them and that depends on the context. But then I kind of created some tools that supports in doing this. So the first thing is that I actually listed a long, long list of kind of needs that humans have. I think it's kind of almost 50 needs. It's like acceptance, affection, appreciation, belonging, air, food, water, rest, freedom, space. I mean, it goes on. And then you kind of check these needs depending on what your organism have. Mm. And I've been doing this with kind of students, designers, researchers, and people often become very surprised when they see how similar needs we usually have, especially when they come to kind of physical needs. Almost all organisms need some kind of air, some kind of nutrition, water, and, yeah. and so on. So it kind of shows the similarities. And by identifying needs, you can also know what you then would need to, like how you would need to fulfill them. I mean, needs is a very common way of thinking in design, like you design in order to fulfill a need. And so if but you have, I, oh, sorry. Yeah, I actually had this conversation with a colleague at the university who questioned this idea of needs, that needs are a very kind of human-centered way of approaching mm. Like it is actually kind of impossible to know what another being really needs. <laughs> uh, and especially if we kind of take this ecological perspective that I think we need to, to take. So what are like the needs of a whole population of crows in the, in the forest? Or what is the needs of like all the lions that live on the savannah? That becomes very kind of, and it becomes hard to kind of put those needs against each other. So it's kind of easy to identify needs in this kind of formal sense, but when you move into the real world, it becomes much more tricky. Yeah, that was also going to be my question a little bit, because I think these very fundamental needs in terms of, okay, you need food, water to survive, that maybe is a bit easier to put onto other organisms, not organizations, but things like freedom, etc. Maybe this is also true of other organisms and maybe we can understand that there's more than that by having the human list and then this, but then it's also hard to know what that might be or feel like for another organism, though it might also be a need. But it makes me think like if someone saw the human race externally, what would they think our needs would be if you went really like meta level looked into the earth, what would it look like? <laughs> Yeah, so there you actually point at another important method, which is defamiliarization. 
to kind of try to look at your very kind of common familiar context but from some kind of outside perspective so what if an alien kind of comes into the world here and observes us humans what would they what would they see because that's the way of also kind of understanding how we as humans behave towards other beings in our environment yeah and so if you have this list of needs so that's kind of your again basis to start a design project involving these organisms have you done this with any projects or like what organisms have you done this with before do you have any examples yeah so in the urban farm i did it with kind of bees and the the plants that were farmed in the urban farm and with students i have done it with their kind of uh, pets but also kind of grains that are cultivated and so on and a third thing is that you can actually start with it from a technology you have so you can actually see the technology as an organism so you can kind of do the same thing with your kind of smartphone and see how that kind of connects with the system because this kind of more than human thinking kind of puts all these entities in the same system yeah i definitely and then what is the next step now that we have thought about the needs of the organisms and the technology that is involved and we have a language for all of this then where do we go from here yeah so we almost already hinted upon that but that is to actually sketch out or draw out the system of interdependence when where all of this is kind of interacting so you, you kind of think of your context that you're designing for and maybe start from the kind of main organism you, you design for, be it the human or the bee or the smartphone. And then you draw relations between all other entities. And this is a very kind of informal or creative or open systems analysis. So these relations can be kind of very functional. So a human needs to eat cucumber and the human cares for the cucumber but it can also be kind of more emotional relationships so humans enjoy seeing cucumbers when they bloom the more kind of personal or soft values mm. so to say because it's important to kind of make all these relationships well and of course the tricky part here is that you very quickly notice like this system can just grow and grow and grow and grow. yeah so at some point you need to be able to kind of close down and so you have to be skilled at knowing what part to focus on when because in the end we are all living in this kind of global earth system but it's not practically feasible <laughs> to always consider everything so there there i'm using and this is a quite hard theory to understand which is agential cuts which means there are kind of momentarily stabilizations of this kind of whole system that is the universe where you kind of separate the system and, and mm. yourselves. And kind of maybe more common way of using this language is to say about different lenses that you use to kind of look at reality. So then you can say like, okay, now I look at it from the user's perspective. Now I take an economical perspective on this. Now I kind of limit the space and so on but the kind of main point is to to say yes we need to recognize the entanglement of everything but we also need to focus on kind of specific areas and what additional value do you think building up this world in a more full way including like emotional relationships and things brings in this designing process yeah 
that kind of opens up the field for the fourth and kind of final part of this process, which is the intervening in this system. So kind of very often kind of user-centered design is kind of short-sighted. So we could take the example of a plastic bag. From a user-centered perspective, it's very convenient to have plastic bags in stores because you don't have your, your kind of bag with you. You fill it with food and it's convenient to carry it home. And kind of yeah. if you only from that smart usage, it's it really fulfills the needs of, needs of humans carrying home food. But if you broaden the perspective, you see that the plastic bags had other, other kind of relationships. It will kind of end up in the ocean and pollute it for kind of hundreds, if not thousands mm. of years. So this is the kind of need to open up and focus more broadly on, on, on systems. But it's also, it can easily become kind of overwhelming. So there I draw on, there's a systems researcher, Donella Meadows, already in the 90s, she identified these 12 leverage points. And leverage points are places in a system where you can actually intervene and, and change something. Mm. And they can be very kind of, so I think her point number 12, the kind of first point is constant parameters and numbers. And that is just when you kind of change the, the number of a system. So for example, instead of heating your house to 20 degrees Celsius, you heat it to 19 degrees Celsius, mm. which means that you save, save energy. Yeah. So those lower points are kind of easy to change but don't really have this kind of systemic yeah down you only affect your your house yeah it's um, not enough to it, make like a pervasive difference exactly but then we can take like a much more higher level points which is who is the person in power and changing the person in power so if i would kind of vote for a mayor that I will say, I will kind of increase the uh, goal values for all temperatures in all houses, then that mm. will have a much bigger systemic impact because then this one action actually affects like all households in the system. Yeah. Uh, and then maybe as a designer, I should focus on kind of uh, affecting who is the uh, major, ma mayor because that will kind of automatically have this other effect. Yeah. So it's kind of, being smart and working efficiently like not making these kind of small changes but actually making these big changes and then we'll kind of shift mm. everything in a way so the 12 leverage points are like the level where you can make the change basically exactly exactly and it also works a lot with kind of and uh, they're called feedback loops and basically mm. it just is that sometimes more of something creates more of something else. So it can yeah. kind of influences. Yeah. So, I mean, one very common example of a feedback loop is, is the kind of climate change. More of carbon dioxide creates warmer temperatures, which creates, actually creates more carbon dioxide because mm. kind of uh, ices are melting, new methane is coming out. So it kind of enforcing itself. While there, there is also similar processes that kind of go this. So when there is kind of less of something that becomes less of something else. That's kind of soil erosion, for example. Mm. When soil erodes, it becomes drier, which means even more soil erodes. So it's just yeah. kind of hearing. So those 
processes we really want to intervene in and change in a direction that makes sense or makes kind of a better world. And these loops are at which level on this? So if you have this 12-point scale, is the idea to go to point 12, so the highest level? Or, yeah, is there a other way to figure out which one makes sense for what you are doing? Yeah, so actually in this theory, like all points are good. So you should work on all these points. Mm. It's just saying that some of these points are easier with less effect. So for example, mm. this kind of changing while other points are much harder but with bigger effect so ideally we should probably work with all of the points but what it shows is that maybe kind of in traditional design research we have been very focused on this kind of lower level leverage points this kind of constants and numbers that you can change and that is good so if we only focus on that we kind of miss the bigger picture so it kind of helps us to to focus on all these different levels of the system at the same time to not forget the other aspects. And do you have any yeah. examples of even like speculative designs that maybe have come out of this process when you've done it with students or researchers or yourself? Yeah, so one example from my own research that I personally like is this speculative design that I call Dirty Nails. So it's based on the observation that some urban farmers actually prefer to kind of dig in the soil without gloves because they really liked to kind of feel the soil and be in contact uh, with the soil. Uh, so I thought like, what if instead of having these kind of sensors measuring the environment on a kind of distance, creating this kind of distancing towards the environment, what if we actually had the sensors on our fingers and we kind of literally stick them into soil and sense the data? And what if this data was actually kind of expressed as sound, as a soundscape? So we can actually kind of learn to listen to the soil, kind of hear the soil, soil data. And this is this kind of illustrates a different approach to, to data gathering. So instead of kind of reading data, measuring data, we are more kind of experiencing and perceiving data. And this is a small shift, but I think it's an important shift because it kind of recognizes how we can kind of be with the modern human world instead of kind of controlling and, and dominating it. Yeah, that's so, so I cool. Encourage, yeah, I encourage like engineers to actually develop this because it needs kind of uh, the components need to be very kind of small so you would really need engineering efforts but it would be a very nice design yeah and i think it's such a like a more sensory way to experience the world always feels a bit more organic and impactful i think like it's you can always read data and also it has an impact but i think this translating it into different forms that you can experience in a more sensitive way is also really it's really cool <laughs> also as pointed out but uh, by one of the urban farmers i kind of presented this idea to is that it would also be more efficient like instead of having to kind of go through the data or reading on a screen you will just kind of perceive and know the data immediately of course, this kind of requires skill in the same way that you need skill to be able to play a music instrument. But once you know how to play the instrument, it's actually very kind of 
quick and automatic. And do you think there's any like impact in how objectively or subjectively people would interpret data if it was presented in different forms or do, since people probably anyway subjectively interpret data <laughs> but do you think that would have be a problem or not or yeah yeah because the thing with data is that it's always kind of limited and measuring this kind of limited aspect of the world so again we could go to back to this idea that i talked earlier about agential count so actually the process of collecting data is making this agential cut where you select like of all these possible things in the world in the environment that you could measure you kind of selected only these kind of four parameters so by presenting that in a very kind of objective way, you create this kind of false sense that's, that this is kind of everything. Um, so actually, it might be kind of more true to reality to present it in a more kind of open-ended, ambiguous way, because in that way, you recognize all that is not measured, all the uncertainties that are also there and will affect the system. Yeah, definitely. I think it would make me also much more interested in data. So I, I hope that this is one of the ways <laughs> the the things move in. But yeah, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really insightful. I know that I will take all of these things with me in any design projects I do now, whether they are directly related to more than human or not, because I guess you don't have to define it as a separate thing. Every project always involves more than human. And maybe that's also just good to acknowledge. But is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to add as well? No, I feel it has been a very interesting talk. And of course, you could talk about this forever. But my main points came across, I think. Nice. Yeah, I think for me, like the first two steps are the most interesting. And so I think I also want to spend some time thinking about that in my own language, because I don't think I think about what this is that much anymore. It's just a bit taken for granted, my worldview and the language I use to talk about things. But maybe that's also nice to just do as a general exercise to be a little bit more aware of it so that's also a big takeaway for me i asked you before if you would think of an open question for our listeners to think about and yeah could you you have a question could you explain it a bit yes so i'm actually kind of borrowing or stealing this session from the book hospicing modernity by vanessa machado but I'm, I want to kind of highlight this question because it really kind of opened up my mind on how you can actually think about trying to kind of maintain a multiplicity of worldviews or positions at the same time. So we have been talking today about the need to kind of recognize different worldviews. So this question or method is a way of doing that. And the question is, what if you were a bus? What would different passengers and the driver think and feel? So this is a question you can kind of pick up at any moment uh, to kind of recognize that maybe even within yourself, you have kind of different re responses to a situation or so on. So maybe taking the question of eating meat, should I eat meat? Maybe your driver is really kind of driving towards eating meat. There are a lot of other passengers sitting next to the drivers that are also kind of eating meat you want to fit in in the society and so on but kind of further away in the back of the bus there is kind of 
a cool gang of teenagers that are kind of vegan giving you all these suggestions and kind of a bad conscience like you shouldn't do it and so on so it's a kind of creative way of kind of really materializing these sometimes conflicting kind of feelings ideas thoughts that you can have both within yourself and in society yeah so the next time you as a listener kind of are faced with a question try to think of it as a bus and yourself as a bus and the different passengers that would be in it this is such great advice <laughs> i don't know what i struggle with that i would make into a bus i will also think about this and i'll put this question as well on the mural board along with the description you sent me so that if listeners want to also contribute there you can also leave your thoughts and tell us what it would be like if you were a bus and it would be really fun to hear that <laughs> but yes thank you so much again for joining me today it was a pleasure and i hope you also had a good time thank you it was a pleasure uh we will have your website in the show notes but if there's anywhere else people can reach out to you or find you then you can also let them know now and i can also add that in later yeah i'm also on twitter and then it's anton underscore p underscore r okay great i think a lot of our listeners will want to keep up with this hopefully and i'm really excited to see what you do next with this method and everything else thank you for having me yes <laughs>